Hey, thanks for joining me. It's Neil Parks, author, paranormal expert, screenwriter, award-winning author, and all-around fun guy, Jedi master, total nerd. You know the rest. Uh, This is the beginning of October, and today I'll be discussing on today's episode of Paranormally Speaking the origins and history of Halloween, the mysteries that surround it, the truth versus the fiction, uh, talking about ghost stories around the bonfire, why I do what I do, how I got sucked into it, and the positive impact it's leaving on those around me, because it's opening dialogue and everyone loves to share their stories with me, which inspires me to write new stories. Of course, I get their permission and try to leave anonymity as an option on the table. On this week's episode of Paranormally Speaking, I'll be right back. Halloween is an annual holiday celebrated each year on October 31st, and Halloween 2019 occurs on Thursday this year in October 31st, and there's been a lot of buzz online about people wanting to put Halloween to the very last weekend of the month in October, which would be heresy considering it always falls on the 31st of October, and that's where Halloween should stay. Moving it to another day or another time would be completely absurd. It originated with the ancient Celtic festival of Samhain, when people would light bonfires and wear costumes to ward off ghosts and evil spirits. In the 8th century, Pope Gregory III designated November 1st as a time to honor All Saints, which All Saints Day became that, incorporated some of the traditions from Samhain, which is Halloween. The evening before was known as All Hallows' Eve, and later Halloween, over time, Halloween evolved into a day of activities like trick-or-treating, carving jack-o'-lanterns, festivities, gatherings, donning costumes, and eating sweet treats. Halloween's origins date back to the ancient Celtic festival. This was 2,000 years ago in the area that is now known as Ireland, the United Kingdom, and northern France. They celebrated their new year on November 1st. Halloween marked the end of the year. This day marked the end of summer and the harvest and the beginning of the dark, cold winter, a time of year that was often associated with human death. Celts believed that on the night before the new year, the boundary between the worlds of the living and the dead became blurred. On the night of October 31st, they celebrated Samhain, when it was believed that the ghosts of the dead returned to earth. In addition to causing trouble and damaging crops, Celts thought that the presence of the otherworldly spirits made it easier for the Druids, or Celtic priests, 
to make predictions about the future. For a people entirely dependent on the volatile nature, natural world, these prophecies were an important source of comfort and direction during the long, dark winter. To um, commemorate the event, Druids built huge sacred bonfires where the people gathered to burn crops and animals as sacrifices to the Celtic deities. During the celebration, the Celts were, wore costumes, typically consisting of animal heads and skins, and it attempted to tell each other's fortunes. And this is where ghost stories around the bonfire started. When the celebration was over, they relit their hearth fires, which they had extinguished earlier that evening, from the sacred bonfire to help protect them during the coming winter. Did you know that one quarter of all the candy sold annually in the U.S. is purchased for Halloween? Amazing little factoid. By 43 AD, the Roman Empire had conquered the majority of Celtic territory. In the course of the 400 years that they ruled the Celtic lands, two festivals of Roman origin were combined with the traditional Celtic celebration of Samhain. The first was Feralia, a day in late October when the Romans traditionally commemorated the passing of the dead. <coughs> Sorry, I'm still fighting a cold. The second was a day to honor Pomona, the Roman goddess of fruit and trees, the symbol of Pomona in the apple. And the incorporation of the celebration into Samhain probably explains the tradition of bobbing for apples that is practiced even today during Halloween parties. On May 13th, 608 AD, Pope Boniface V dedicated the Pantheon, Pantheon in Rome in honor of all Christian martyrs and the Catholic Feast of All Martyrs Day. That was established on that day in the Western Church. Pope Gregory III later expanded the festival to include all saints as well as all martyrs and moved the observance from May 13th to the 1st of November. By the 9th century, the influence of Christianity had spread into Celtic lands, where it gradually blended with all the supplanted older Celtic rites. In 1000 AD, the church made November 2nd All Saints Day, a day to honor the dead, all souls. It's widely believed today that the church was attempting to replace the Celtic festival of the dead with a related church-sanctioned holiday. All Souls Day was celebrated Similar, uh, similarly, um, along the traditions of Samhain, with big bonfires, parades, and dressing up in costumes as saints, angels, and devils. The All Saints Day celebration was also called All Hallows or All Hallomas from the Middle English Alomese, meaning All Saints. And the night before it, the traditional night of Samhain and the Celtic religion began to be called All Hallows' Eve, and eventually, what we know it as today, Halloween. The celebration of Halloween was extremely limited in colonial New England because the rigid Protestant belief systems there believing that Halloween was much more common with Satanism. It was more commonly practiced in Maryland and the southern colonies and accepted in that region. As the beliefs and the customs of different European ethnic groups and the American Indians meshed, a distinctly American version of Halloween began to emerge. The first celebrations included play parties, which were public events held to celebrate the harvest. Neighbors would share stories of the dead, ghost stories, tell each other's fortunes, and dance and sing around the bonfires. Colonial Halloween festivals 
also featured the telling of ghost stories and mischief-making of all kinds, basically playing pranks on each other. By the middle of the 19th century, annual autumn festivities were common, but Halloween was not yet celebrated everywhere in the United States. In the second half of the 19th century, America was flooded with new immigrants. These new immigrants, especially the millions of Irish fleeing the Irish potato famine, helped to popularize the celebration of Halloween nationally. Imagine no longer being tied down to your computer, but having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application. The talk shows you follow now follow you. And your iPhone is now the fastest and easiest way to stay connected to the best talk radio on the Internet. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Mobile talk radio from TalkStream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. We live in a time now where so many people are paranoid about the celebration of Halloween. Uh, people in regards to the religious extremists or those that are ultra-conservative, believing that Halloween is a reflection of Satanism, that it, it glorifies the devil, that it makes light of evil and uh, makes it okay to skate a little on the dark side. The truth being... The truth is it couldn't be any further from that, actually. Um, Jack-o'-lanterns are a symbol of warding off evil spirits, if you believe in that. Wearing costumes, that's a way of confusing evil spirits from trying to manipulate you, if you believe in that. Bobbing for apples is a fun tradition that was started in the Roman Catholic era of the early church. Other things pertaining to Satanism in reality is a lot more underground than it would be commercialized. Um, your traditional Satanists don't like the limelight. They don't like to be in the spotlight. They like to operate in the shadows, hide from uh, what could possibly hinder their practices, their rituals. Uh, Halloween would not be a way for them to truly honor their Dark Lord or a way for them to truly be represented as... Uh, key figure of Satanism. So Halloween as a whole, I grew up in the church. I'm still very active in the church now as an adult. I love Jesus Christ. He's always been awesome to me. But so many churches and other Christians make it hard for normal Christians to truly witness to the world or be a good example of kindness and empathy and, and uh, faith <clears throat> because of asinine practices and asinine opinions and where Jesus tells us to be fishers of men, a lot of Christians or those who claim to be Christ-like will take the boat out to the water, strangle the fish until it submits, and then decide to gut it and fillet it and make it their own. Forced conversion initially, kind of what we did through Manifest Destiny as your settlers and the new world and pushing out and forcing out the original inhabitants of this land into forced conversion, forced baptisms, uh, either submit or die. We're called to be fishers of men, not to strangle the fish into submission. That does not reflect the teachings of Jesus Christ. And for us as Christians, those who believe 
In other words, we need to throw stones a lot less and need to let people be people. Let people who find joy in certain things that obviously are not hurting anyone else physically, let them live. Let people love who they want to love. Let people dress in a Halloween freaking costume and knock on door to doors to get candy. It's not hurting anyone. It's not like they're committing arson and burning your house down. They just want freaking candy and they may be dressed as the devil. Um, That would be a good time to say, oh, the devil's creepy. And that could open some dialogue. Who knows? Maybe the person dressed as the devil uh, could be agnostic or atheist and... What better time to push someone further away from the teachings of Jesus than to cast stones at them for being dressed as the devil? It's a dual-edged sword. We need to pick our battles as God-fearing people and realize that we share this planet with so many other people, so many other religions, so many other walks of life, and especially this country. So many other colors, so many other languages, so many other faiths and practices, or lack thereof within faith. And we need to be better to each other. Halloween's a good time to really start anew, a new harvest, a new year. Uh, It's the end of summer. It's the beginning of fall. And even though we're experiencing record high temperatures in October, it's summer's gone. So now we're moving into, currently it's October 2nd. It's the beginning of the most wonderful time of the year. Like my book, Haunted Holidays, I wrote... Reflecting on ghost stories starting from the Halloween season on up to New Year's Eve. I tied in a lot into this book and ended up winning a literary award in 2014. I think my message may be reaching people. And I've noticed a lot of people who've been more rigid in the past and more opinionated in the past and harder to reach in the past are actually breaking bread with those around them and not being such dicks. Roswell, UFOs, flying saucers, alien abduction, are we alone? Information regarding this and many other questions about the unknown are only a click away at www.theufostore.com. Theufostore.com offers hundreds of DVDs about UFOs, aliens, crop circles, conspiracies, Bigfoot, suppressed science, ancient mysteries. Log on to www.theufostore.com and request a free UFO store catalog. Theufostore.com, the largest selection of UFO products on the Internet. This story is called Woman on Fire, from my newest release, Haunted Enough? Terrifying Tales to Tell Your Friends. The old storage sheds along the tracks were abandoned shortly after the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad was built. It wasn't long before the poor residents of the area moved in. The sheds provided a shelter of sort, although the winter wind still pierced through every crevice. Small fireplaces that were constructed did little to keep the cold at bay. A local woman named Jenny lived there alone in one of the smaller sheds. She had fallen on hard times, and with no family to protect her, she was forced to find work where she could and take whatever shelter was available to someone with no money. Jenny never had enough to eat, and during the winter, her tiny fire barely kept her going during the cold months 
Jenny still kept her spirits up and appointed herself as a protector to those around her. She would help other folks when they got sick or needed food, sometimes going without food herself so that others could eat. One cold evening, Jenny sat shivering over her fire, drinking broth out of a wooden bowl when a rough and rogue ember from the fire flew from that and lit her blankets on fire. Intent on filling her aching stomach, Jenny was so weak and tired that she didn't notice her flaming blankets until the fire had burned through the heavy wool of her coat and began to scorch her skin. Jumping up in terror, Jenny threw her broth over the licking flames, but the fluid did nothing to house the fire itself. In terror, Jenny fled from the shack and ran along the train tracks, screaming for help as the flames engulfed her body. The train station was not far from her, and instinctively, Jenny made a run for it. She was hoping to find someone, anyone to help her. Within moments, her body was a glowing inferno, and Jenny was overwhelmed with pain. Her screams grew more horrible as her steps slowed. She staggered blindly onto the tracks just west of the station. She had become a ball of fire that barely looked human. In her agony, she did not see the glowing lights of the train coming around the curve, or hear the screech of the brakes as the engineer spotted her fire-eaten figure and tried to stop. A moment later, her terrible screams broke off as the train mowed her down. Alerted by the whistle, the crew from the station came running as the engineer halted the train and ran back down the tracks towards poor Jenny, who was still burning and strewn about in many pieces. The men doused the fire and attempted to carry her away, but there was so much of her scattered that it could no longer be classified as a human body. There was no hope for her. She was destitute and dead, with nothing to leave behind and no one to claim her. A few days later, a few local people and the crew from the train station pitched in and were able to give her remains, a pauper's funeral. Jenny was buried in an unmarked grave at the local churchyard. Within a few days, another poverty-stricken family had moved into her shack, and soon Jenny was forgotten. Forgotten, that is, until a year later, when a train rounding the same bend west of the station was confronted by a screaming ball of fire. It was too late to stop. The young engineer, who had only one week on the job, plowed over the glowing figure before he could bring the train to a screeching halt. Leaping from the engine, he ran back down the tracks to search for a mangled, burning body. But there was nothing there. Shaken, he brought his train into the station and reported the incident to the station master. After hearing his tale, the station master remembered Jenny and realized that her spirit had returned to haunt the tracks where she had met her fate. To this day, the phantom of Jenny still appears on the tracks on the anniversary of the day she died. Many engineers have rounded the curve just west of the station and found themselves face to face with the burning ghost of screaming Jenny as she makes her deadly 
run towards the Harper's Ferry Station, seeking in vain for someone to save her. I grew up in a really small town called Beaver, Ohio. My fascination with the macabre started at a very early age and growing up in Beaver, Ohio from the age of five until 12, when we moved out of Beaver, essentially down the road, a good four miles away from there to a even smaller town or village called Givens, Ohio. But when living in Beaver, I lived directly across the road from the old Beaver Cemetery. And this is where my fascination with grave marking and walking through old cemeteries and making etchings from carbon paper onto the tombstone itself and making rubbings. Uh, Just collecting the names and dates of birth and dates of death of these strange people that I'd never met, but forming a bond with them by just trying to understand who they were when they were alive and finding family members who are descendants of these people and trying to get a grasp on the history of who they were, the impact they made on the lives around them, uh, what they liked to eat, uh, how they died. Uh, That stuff always fascinated me, still does today. I'm 44 and back then I was wicked young, but that's what drew me into the macabre and to the paranormal walking that cemetery at dusk and riding my bicycle through it, uh, looking at the mausoleums, looking at uh, the tombstones, the headstones, and at times, if lucky enough, encountering things that are virtually unexplainable and not of this world. Nothing ever hurt me when I was there. Um, Nothing ever tried to get me while I was there. A lot of people ask me, how in the world are you able to go into a cemetery late at night or go into uh, an abandoned property, a a business that you know is haunted, a location that you know is haunted? How in the world do you just run in there like it's some sort of an extreme sport? And truth be told, there are people that are jumping out of perfectly good airplanes for a rush or what they consider a rush and parachuting. I would never jump out of a perfectly good airplane unless it were going to crash. I found a parachute and I'm like, okay, let's try this. But if the plane were in perfectly good condition and just flying over, taking off, then landing, why on earth would I want to jump out of it and risk the chute not opening? But to them, what I do is the equivalent of jumping off a bridge with a bungee cord or jumping out of a plane with a parachute. I don't see it as that extreme or that dangerous or even that um, exhilarating, but just fascinating, really, is how I put it. I thoroughly enjoy the history and the mystery of it all, and it's something that has really helped me in my writing through the years, just uh, as a youth being that fascinated with it, growing into an adult being even more fascinated with it, and my fascination and uh, ability to write about it and truly understand it has even drifted over to my children. My two kids are taking a crack at creative writing and they too love Halloween. They're always helping me set up the big, huge Halloween display that I put out in my yard each year. And each year it gets bigger. I'm going to have to try to outdo myself next year because this year is by far the biggest it has ever been. And it has taken me a long ass time to put it together. So we'll see how that goes. 
it's been a lot of fun doing what I do and I continue to keep doing it till the day I die and then maybe someone will write about me and the legacy I leave behind you never know we can all only hope and wish that the impact we leave on the earth and for those that we leave behind is a good impact a good legacy and some good stories to tell Hello, kids and adults in the listening audience. I'm Neil Parks, award-winning author and paranormal expert. I'd like to wish all of you a very happy Halloween. You are listening to Big Bad Daddy Wolf's Halloween special on 96.6 The Wolf. If you'd like to learn more about me, then you need to get to Google and search at The Neil Parks or my bookstore website, which is www.lulu.com slash spotlight slash Neil Parks. Thanks. Good evening. This is Neil Parks, award-winning author and world-renowned paranormal researcher. I'm about to read to you a story from my second book, Haunted Chillicothe. The story is about Elizabeth's grave. The legend of Elizabeth's grave has played a major part in the mystery and whispers of legend and lore in this area for many generations. The stories that come from there are terrifying. The rumors are similar from person to person and the history holds no real validity. So many accounts have been relayed to me through the years and I approach each case with an open mind and a sense of skepticism. The area in which these hauntings take place is in a wildlife reserve off Egypt Pike Road. There is a long dirt road that will lead you to where an old cemetery rests to your left. The location has been vandalized time and time again by local hooligans, which has left a majority of the tombstones in disarray and not placed where they should be. This is an area which is said by many to have been sacred ground among the Native Americans that used to live here. One of the many stories that I have been told pertains to a group of teens that attempted to spend the night in the old graveyard. Their accounts stated that they were sitting in lawn chairs and a cold breeze blew through the area. A frightening calm hovered above them, and within a few seconds, the sound of growling and the gnashing of teeth and the vibration of what sounded like hundreds of feet stomping through the woods was headed in their direction. Without so much as a second thought, the teens grabbed their gear left the chairs, and fled from the campsite, completely consumed with fear. In the taillights of their vehicle, they claimed to have seen huge red glowing eyes. There are many people who have claimed that they arrive at the site and shut off their vehicles. Then they will not start up again. Some people have reported seeing red glowing eyes protruding from the woods lurking in the field or peering from behind the tree where Elizabeth supposedly hanged until she died. I had an unfortunate experience many years ago 
while I was following up on a UFO sighting in the area. I was walking around the old cemetery location and had the beam of my flashlight panning across the heavily wooded backdrop. This is the area where dozens of tombstones lie scattered about. The sight of total disrespect for the dead saddened me, and what happened next took the breath from my very lungs. The beam of my flashlight exposed what appeared to be a Bigfoot creature. I took three huge steps back before I was able to breathe again. I almost ran back to my vehicle before realizing that it was only a man-made beast. In the darkness of night, along an overgrown tree line, the fake Bigfoot looked very real. It turns out one of the local high schools does this every year as a prank. There are still so many unanswered questions and different versions of the story and hundreds of people reporting weird phenomenon in this area that I had to launch a full-scale investigation into the legend of Elizabeth's grave. On October 21st, 2006, while I was taking part in a paranormal investigation with the South Central Ohio Paranormal Society, we attempted to shed some light on the history and folklore that surrounds the area within Elizabeth's grave. There are so many stories that have been floating around about this area. The stories pertain to her grave and the mystery behind who Elizabeth was, where she came from, where she went, and what exactly happened to her. Upon our arrival, we ran into a young couple at the site seeking the same answers. They were from the area. However, they had only stopped by once before. They had actually made this night their second encounter in search of this mysterious grave. Their names were Andrew and Victoria. They were there the night before as well. The first time, they were joined by two of Victoria's friends. Their story was indeed strange. According to Victoria, a possible residual apparition of Elizabeth herself may have touched her. She said, while I was walking to the right side of my group, I was at a distance of no more than two people away from them. My group just happened to be to my left when I felt something grab me and pull me further from my friends. I froze for a moment so I could gather myself. I realized that the only other people in the area besides me were to my left, Victoria stated. She continued, I was motionless and still. It was only a few moments before I actually brought up the experience with the others in my group. When they were made aware of this, they bore witness to a phenomenon unlike anything that they could have ever imagined, Andrew added. Everything around us grew quiet except the sound of tree limbs snapping and a silent whisper coming from that oak tree to the right. It sits next to a natural pathway by the cemetery. Andrew explained to us how they were made aware of this supernatural hotspot. They discovered the location through the website ForgottenOhio.com. The site seems to be a popular resource for local Scoobies. Andrew also informed us of some excellent haunted hotspots in and around the Dayton, Ohio area. His information and their accounts were most helpful. The stories and legends surrounding the mystery of Elizabeth were similar through their statements and understanding 
to pertaining to their experiences. The legend according to what they've heard or read revolves around the idea that Elizabeth was a witch and frightened local zealots murdered her. She allegedly haunts the woods in and around this cemetery. She is supposed to be buried to the right of the oak tree that she was hung from. However, there are no written records pertaining to her living as a witch or dying as a result of witchcraft. There is a headstone bearing the name Elizabeth that rests in the basement of the archives building in the historical downtown district of Chillicothe, Ohio. It remains there in order to protect it from vandals. It is believed to be the real headstone from the actual Elizabeth herself. Elizabeth and her mother were said to have fled from Salem, Massachusetts in 1692 for the crimes of witchcraft. Elizabeth was supposed to have been 20 at the time of her death in 1712. Elizabeth was only an infant when her mother fled with her from Salem. They were said to be seeking refuge as far from the madness as possible. The two of them took path through the area that went through what would later become known as the Erie Canal. Elizabeth and her mother found a vacant house in the woods, no more than 300 feet from where the cemetery now rests. Elizabeth's mother was said to have befriended a local farmer. The farmer's first wife died in childbirth. The farmer took Elizabeth's mother as his wife after a long courtship. Elizabeth's mother never told her new husband about her supernatural abilities or where she came from. However, as Elizabeth grew into a young woman, it became evident to everyone in the area that both Elizabeth and her mother possessed special abilities. This discovery led to their death by the hands of paranoid, angry people. With torches and pitchforks, the locals headed to the house that Elizabeth's mother made into a home for them. Later that evening, when we finished our investigation by speaking briefly with another group of spooky enthusiasts who were there looking for the same answers, the group traveled well over an hour to visit this spot, and they too found out about it through this same website. In the end, our research showed that while we were in the far left side of this area, we noticed that there were several dozen broken headstones and grave markers. One of those headstones displayed the name Elizabeth. It showed the date of death being 1932. We noticed heavy drops in energy from the readings on our electromagnetic pulse meters. The further we got from the area, the more severe the jump in electromagnetic energy occurred. The meter stayed calm for the most part. However, there were significant drops in magnetic energy while we were standing near the oak tree with Andrew and Victoria. After almost an hour of calm silence, the wind started to pick up and a phantom aroma filled the air around us. It smelled like a strawberry perfume mixed with the smell of rust. While this was plaguing us, my attention was quickly switched. One of the members of the research team stated that he had the feeling of a little hand with a gentle grip clasping onto their left hand. Their hands smelled like strawberries for the rest of the evening. This was, without a doubt, more than we bargained for. At that exact moment, 
our meter dropped by several points, and after the wind died down, it quickly rose back up to where it was before. What a night! We not only encountered the unexplained, but we encountered others who were looking for the same answers. We walked away from the investigation only to realize that the case of Elizabeth's grave and the enigmatic mysteries that surround it are definitely still open. Thanks for listening today. Have a great rest of the week, a wonderful weekend, and next time I'll have more cool stuff to talk about, maybe a little more in-depth, uh, maybe an actual reading from one of my books, or a special guest. You never know what I have cooked up. Till then.